Welcome back to the God Story podcast, exploring the big picture of the Bible to bring us back to the gospel. I'm Brent Siddle, and today I'm back in Palmerston, North New Zealand, with the Reverend Ian Reed, Rido of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, and we're going to be discussing Hebrews chapter 7. And today, Rido, we're going to be meeting a priest king. Right throughout the epistle to the Hebrews, we've seen that the Lord Jesus Christ is better. But how, Rito, is Jesus better? This is one of the things that Hebrews really explores is the, the idea that Jesus has come to fulfill all of these ideas that are picked up in the Old Testament. And he is better in that he is the fulfillment of those things. Yeah, what sort of issues have this community in Hebrews been dealing with? I, th- I think what they're dealing with is they've uh, probably a Jewish community. Uh, they're exploring who Jesus is. They've come and met Jesus, uh, and they're trying to work out how the law fits in with their life. So that being the Old Testament law, how does it fit in with being a Christian? Does it is it something that we have to do to to be saved? Uh, and how does Jesus kind of fit in with that, or is it do we just get rid of it altogether? And I think they're kind of working out who Jesus is. How does the law fit in with that, and how does their own salvation kind of work in in with that as well? And in chapter six, we've learnt that in spite of our sin and fallibility, we have a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has gone before us and who is a high priest after the order of this gentleman called Melchizedek. Shall we read Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 3? For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now that's really weird, Rito. Who who is Melchizedek? He's this random guy who kind of just pops up once in the Old Testament in Genesis 14 and he meets Abraham as Abraham is coming back kind of from war, from rescuing Lot, his nephew. Uh, and it's just a, this one kind of little incident that we get. He, he There's one other small mention of him in Psalm 110, which actually gets mentioned here in, in this passage. But he just seems to be this one man that Abraham meets as he's coming back from war and they have a conversation uh, they do a bit of a deal, what, what it seems to be, and then we never hear about him again. This is kind of odd. And what role does he play, though, in Genesis 14? When Abraham comes back and he's kind of coming back with his plunder, he meets Melchizedek, and Melchizedek comes out and blesses him, uh, and Abraham gives him a tenth, as it says here, of, of everything that he has. And then they share this little meal together where they share bread and wine together. Ah, and so there's obviously kind of a foretaste maybe of what Jesus does kind of later on. But that wasn't an uncommon kind of meal to have together. But there's, it's a sign that you're making a covenant together and it's a, there's blessing kind of going on there as well. And it's interesting that, that as God has blessed and promised blessing on Abraham, so does this guy Melchizedek. Yeah. In what sense was Melchizedek both a priest and a king? Well... We're not actually told you know, how or why, but we're told that he is. And I think that's the interesting thing, that he is a priest. And 
the thing that he's the priest of is the, is the most interesting thing, priest of God Most High, where no one else is ever called that anywhere else in Scripture, uh, but priest of God Most High, this random guy who seems to be a priest of Abraham's God. Uh, in terms of his kingship, we're just told that he is a king, and particularly we, we, it says here uh, in what verse have we got? Verse two. Um, verse two. King of righteousness and king of peace. The, the whole idea is king king of Salem being shalom, that idea of peace. And people do say that that becomes Jerusalem later, uh, which is another interesting kind of thing. Mm. Lots of connections. There's no, there are no coincidences in Scripture, are there? No. Something's going on. <laughs> Something definitely is going on. It's drawing those threads together, isn't it? Yeah. Was Melchizedek actually, uh, I don't even know how you pronounce this word, theophanic? Theophanic appearance of the of, was it was he Jesus in some earlier form? When you we, yeah, when pronouncing those words, just say it with confidence is what I say. It could be it doesn't matter if it's wrong. If you say it confidently, no one will pick it up on that. Same with the names in the Old Testament. No one knows how they're meant to be said, so we'll just say it confidently. <laughs> we kind of will get right. I, I don't know. So what, what you're saying is does he is he uh before Jesus' incarnation, is he kind of an incarnate kind of form of Jesus somehow? And many Christians in the past have said said that he is. I don't know, is what I'm going to say. I, I'm open to it being uh, Jesus. But I think the interesting thing about uh, Hebrews, and particularly chapter 7, is that he's in the line of Melchizedek. So maybe he's not, you know, maybe it's not Jesus appearing, but in the line of, you know, kind of, you kind of can't be in the line of something if you are that if you are that thing as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I'm inclined to think that you're right that it isn't Jesus, but he points. He's certainly a type of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Well, well it, let's read on uh, because we find out more about Melchizedek in verses four to eleven. Uh, it carries on. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. He got all that, Rito? It's perfectly clear, isn't it? One more verse, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Okay. What are some of the things we're told about Melchizedek in that passage? Well, it's... It's really it's a kind of a Jewish argument here, isn't it? It's not something that we probably would point to and say, "Hey, look at the the line drawn here." But what's being pointed to is that if Abraham is blessing this guy, this priest, clearly then Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, being and Abraham being one of the most kind of important figures in the Old Testament, one of the most important patriarchs, particularly if if. Uh, Melchizedek is being blessed by Abraham, then he's a very important figure that we need to look to. The other thing is is saying that that the Levites, who are eventual descendants of Abraham, and they're the ones who are ordained as the priests, the way that they had their priestly kind of order was uh, through genealogy, and so that means meaning you were born into it. 
uh, that they're kind of paying a tenth to Melchizedek as well because in, in the Jewish way of thinking, he's in the loins of, it's a nice way of kind of saying your private area in, in, in Hebrews here, uh, but it's kind of in the loins of Abraham that, that it's kind of a, he's drawing a line between Abraham and the Levites paying the, the tenth as well. Mm. In what sense though is Melchizedek greater than Abraham? Good question, isn't it? But it's, it's, I think that it's kind of a tricky one. But I think it's because Abraham is blessed by God uh, and kind of said that the blessing will come through him, where we have this kind of strange figure who is the priest and king already, mm-hmm. uh, who's receiving the blessing from Abraham himself. We're not told kind of you know, much about Melchizedek. So we don't know everything about him, what he does or what he achieved or anything like that. But what we are told is that Abraham pays stuff to him, so he must be greater somehow. Yeah, why does Abraham give Melchizedek a tithe? Uh, 10% presumably. Don't know. It's um, Abraham's come back from war. Don't know. I'm not sure why. What, what do you think? I've got no idea. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, that's why I'm asking. Ask me the tricky questions, not prepared oh, to ask. Absolutely, them. I'll help where I can. But in this instance, brother, I'm 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 mystified. <laughs> but how does the writer then present Melchizedek as greater than all the Levitical priests? There in verses eight to ten. So he draws a line to the Levites and says the Levites had to collect a tenth from all of the other Israelites, uh, and they they paid that to the to the priests and they would either use that for their own worship or for their own living uh, but he's saying that the, the even the because Abraham paid the tenth it was like them paying the tenth to Melchizedek and so it's kind of the money's going upwards like maybe a, a pyramid scheme but in a, in a good way here not, not a negative way but you have this kind of uh, that they're paying through Abraham to a greater priest even than their priesthood why is Melchizedek the most important priest in the Bible, well, we find that out in this passage uh, that you need this priest. Well, firstly, we might say even in the Old Testament, he's the only one described as the priest of the God Most High. Uh, and then, but in this passage, what we see is that he doesn't come through a generational or genial, you know, kind of a genealogical line, but he's called that kind of outside of that. And mm. this passage tells us he doesn't have a father, doesn't have a mother. He may have, we don't know that, but he's not referred to as have, having those things. So it's not through a genealogical line that he becomes a priest, but it's through some other means. Yeah, what does verse 11 tell us about the problems with the Levitical priesthood? What were the problems with the Levitical priesthood? So the, we need to understand the idea behind the priests. So, and and it, kind of, it gets back to the heart of the law. What's the law there for? And when you read uh, Exodus, is it 20 or 21, where the Ten Commandments are? One yep, of those. One of those. Uh, and God says, I am the God. You know, I am your God. Uh, but I am in relationship with you. But then he go, gives a whole list of laws and it's basically saying, if you get out of relationship with me, these are the ways to get back into it. And so you need a priestly kind of class to kind of act as the mediators between you getting out of God, out of relationship with God and coming back into relationship with God. And that's what the Levites do is that they act as that kind of that intermediary between uh, the, the rest of the Israelites and God himself. Uh, but what this is saying is that this is not needed anymore. We have a new priest, or we'll get to that in a second, but Melchizedek kind of, op- you know, kind of, he doesn't have that kind of function of getting us in and out of relationship with God, but maybe he is God himself. 
Why then do we need a different priest, a priest who is not a priest by the law? Basically because it doesn't work is the, is the answer. The, the law, the priesthood, is just an ongoing, never-ending sacrifice story. It's just on and on and on because those sacrifices could never actually get you all the way there. And all they're ever doing is pointing you to the fact that you can't get there and that you need that we need something else other than this thing that's going on. Mm. Okay, verses 12 to 14, having sorted out that, these are not easy arguments to follow, Rito, are they, in Hebrews? It's cl- very, very clear. Come on. You can't <laughs> no, no, you're right. It is, it is tricky. It's absolutely brilliant stuff. Uh, verse 12, he carries on. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Okay, what's the significance of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ comes from the tribe of Judah then? It's interesting that when uh, the is it Israel himself, so Jacob is dying, he blesses different parts of the of the family, blesses all the, all of the kind of um, his children, and he says to the Levites, they're going to be the priests, basically. But the interesting thing that he says to Judah uh, is that he, from him, it will be the kings. And so you've got no, there's no option for someone from Judah to be a priest. You do have the option to be a king, but no, no option to be a priest. So it's interesting that, that then you have Jesus be, becoming a priest, but it doesn't sound like he should be able to, because if he's, if he's not a Levite, how can that happen? He's not in the Levitical line. Mm, that's mm. right. Yep. So how, how does the priesthood of the Lord Jesus supersede even that of Melchizedek then, according to the writer to Hebrews? Because what Jesus has done is he's come uh, and he hasn't abolished the law, but he's fulfilled it. And by fulfilling the law, he's able to actually act as a proper priest, not one who has to kind of constantly offer sacrifices, constantly... Uh, kind of bring people back into relationship, but he's able to do it once and for all. And this is one of the terms that keeps coming up in Hebrews, and we'll see it more and more, is that Jesus does it once and for all. So why do we need a priest like Melchizedek then, not, not, a, not a Levitical priest in that sense? Because the Levitical priest is just it would never work for us. We'd still be having sacrifices and we'd, we'd still be out of relationship with God. We need a real priest who will get us all the way in and will take us all the, all the way in once and for all. It reminds me of a story told by uh, John Chapman, who probably taught you at uh, college in, in Sydney. Uh, he, he took us for preaching and he told the story of uh, a guy who'd bought a Rolls Royce. He was an Australian, Rito. He bought a Rolls Royce in Australia and he wanted to know how much horsepower the engine was and no one could tell him how much horsepower the engine was so he wrote off to rolls royce in england who wrote back a very english response that said dear sir you have bought a rolls royce it will be sufficient <laughs> and that was chapo's illustration of the death the power of the death of jesus and his priesthood that he is sufficient he takes us all the way like the rolls royce yeah well not like the rolls royce in one sense but you know <laughs> I don't want to, you know, I don't want to kind of pick apart, <laughs> kind of, <laughs> particularly I can't go against anything John Chapman says, but you're right, it's, he is sufficient. And this is the, this is the thing that, that I think the, the readers of this letter are having a real trouble with. 
is Jesus really sufficient? You know, will he really take me all the way there or will he kind of take me some of the way there or can I get out of out of it somehow. Okay, we carry on. Verse 15, folks, uh, chapter 7. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. So there are our Levites, Rito, yep, yep. presumably. Uh, but by the power of an indestructible life. So why couldn't the Levitical priesthood fully mediate between us and God? Because they themselves are full of sin. So their hearts are full of sin as well. And so that, that becomes the ultimate problem. So that, that's one, one issue, is that their sin still, is still there as well. So they're not perfect people. Uh, and the, the other problem is the sacrifices that they offer are not sufficient either. And so they're, they're offering animal sacrifices. Uh, and it's more of a shadow for what the real sacrifice needs to be, which needs to be a perfect human life. And so that those animals need to be perfect animals in the way that without blemish, you're not just giving your second best to God, but you're giving your best. Uh, but so they were, they were perfect animals, but they were still not enough to kind of cover our sin. Yeah, what does the writer mean there in verse 16 by the power of an indestructible life? What does he mean by the power of an indestructible life? That's a tricky one again as well, isn't it? Thank you for throwing me all, yeah. all the tricky ones. Uh, my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> but I, th I think it's about the, the, that Jesus, what we need is someone to be perfect uh, and someone who is unlike us in that kind of sense, not full of sin, uh, but someone who is able to live their whole life in relationship with God and never get out of that relationship. Uh, okay. And uh, what's the significance of the quote there in verse 17? Which I just read, For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 17, you're a priest. So what is the significance of, of the fact we're told that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? So it's a quote from Psalm 110, which is... Interestingly, uh, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's this kind of random psalm uh, that, that kind of pops up, and I think Peter also references it in uh, Acts 2 when he's talking in Jerusalem. Uh, but the, the whole thing is spoken to David, uh, to, to King David, but it's a prophetic psalm about David's son that's coming on. Uh, and so we have this idea uh, that whoever's coming on as David's descendant, will be both a king and a priest. And when you read Psalm 110, it, it, like if you were just back in the Old Testament, you're like, what is this about? It just it seems so odd. Uh, but there seems to be God is doing something to fulfill his mission. Yeah, and bringing together those two strands of the, of the Old Testament, the, the priest, uh, which we get first, and then the king, who comes, of course, later. In proceedings. Yeah. Okay, verses 18 to 19. On the, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, what do these verses add to the argument, Ian? So the, the question really is, what is the, the kind of old commandment, the former commandment? Here is it the whole law, or is it the the need to be sacrifice? You know, kind of sacrificing. Not sure. Probably not. In some sense, is the old law the requirement to be in relationship uh, is no longer there, so we don't need that anymore. We don't need to be obedient to the law for relationship. We're going to be talking about the law a bit more uh, as we as we move on to the other, some other chapters later on. Uh, but for 
in 19, it's, that little bit in the in the parentheses is really important. For the law made nothing perfect. It's kind of even though the law is good, and the law is perfect. The law cannot make anything perfect. So we need something else to make us perfect. Well, next we're given three reasons why this priesthood will be able to draw us to God. Uh, verses 20 to 22. I'll just pick it up. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay. Well, firstly, we're told that this priesthood is better because it was made with a promise. And Rita, what was the promise? Well, again, that's back in uh, chapter, sorry, Psalm 110. The, the promise is what's said there, that the Lord has sworn will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So we've got this eternal kind of nature about this promise that God has said it, it will happen, it has happened, uh, and that Jesus, who it's ultimately pointing to, is a priest forever. And what's happened as a result of that promise there in verse 22, where he says Jesus has been made a guarantor of a better covenant? So his death and resurrection and our ascension is a guarantee of what's coming for us, the hope of eternal life, the hope of salvation, and the hope of salvation without needing obedience to the law, uh, but its hope of, of kind of having faith in him leads to salvation. Okay, so the writer to Hebrews is really building up this great argument, isn't he? It's like a, a, a huge war, brick by brick, where he's, he's placing the, the bricks of, mm. of the, the argument in. 23 to 25 of chapter 7, he carries on. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death. This is another problem. They mm. died. Yep. The, the, the Levitical priest died. They were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, because this is Jesus, yep. because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. That's a wonderful passage. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay, so how does the Lord Jesus constantly mediate for us, Ian? Well, that's what a priest does. A priest is a mediator. He stands between the divine and the human, mediating between the, the two kind of parties. But here, and we'll see this a little bit uh, later, is that Jesus stands there in heaven mediating for us between God uh, and us. One of the things is that because he is both uh, God, divine, and human as well, he can do that perfectly. And he does that in a way that, that is glorious. He, one of the, kind of an old saying is that Jesus is humanity to the divine, humanity to God, uh, but he is divine to humanity. So he represents God to us and he represents us to God. So that's why he can be a mediator forever. And why in verse 25 there is the Lord Jesus able to completely save You've got these two ideas. You've got in 24, oh sorry, 23, uh, you've got him, you've got the kind of whole death thing, the death of the, of the Levitical priest. But then because he can live forever, raised and ascended, uh, because he now lives, he can do it forever. And, and so there's no doubt about that, where their priesthood, it kind of came and went. You could have a good priest, you could have a bad priest, but that whether it was good or bad, it always ended with their death. Uh, but now, because Jesus will never die, he can save us all the way, and there's no doubt about it. And so our salvation then is secure. You betcha. 
Yeah. How does this passage speak to those of us who are struggling with a particular sin or sins? This is the practical outworking of all this theology. How does, how does the passage speak to those of us who are struggling with a particular sin or sins? And this is one of the, the things that we often think is that our sin might draw us away from God and that you know, we, it might have the option of even breaking our relationship with God, uh, but not if we have a mediator. A mediator is there to do that very thing, to speak on our behalf. And what Jesus is doing is that no matter how much we sin, he's always saying to the Father, look at me. Don't look at them. Look at me. Look at my sacrifice. Uh, look at my, now, my life. It is enough. And the Father... He, doesn't, he no longer needs to look at us in terms of our sin. What we need to do, though, is when we draw closer to Jesus, even in our sin, what we find is that we take our eyes off ourselves, we start to look to him, and our sin starts to fall away. It doesn't mean it goes away kind of immediately, but it starts to fall away. Uh, verses 26 to 28, let's finish off the chapter. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints, here we go, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. Mm. Yeah. So what does the writer tell us about Jesus' perfection? Well, he's made perfect forever, but it's not a, people look at that and you kind of step back and think, oh, was there something not perfect about Jesus? Was he, maybe there was sin in there or something kind of going on, which doesn't fit with anything else that's saying. It's perfected in the sense of he is already a priest forever, but he has to actually work that out and actually has to live that out. You know, you can say that I'm the best at something, but unless you actually show that you are the best at that thing, then you're not really the best at that thing. It's the same with Jesus, is that he is the priest eternally, uh, but he actually needs to work that out in, in his life. And why is Jesus sacrificed the perfect sacrifice once and for all? Well, it gets back to what the problem with the Levitical system was, was that one, it had to be a human sacrifice, uh, and two, it had to be a perfect human. So, and they could, ne- they could never do that. There was, it was just never possible. And so because uh, Jesus does live a perfect life in perfect relationship with the Father, uh, he is able to be that, that perfect sacrifice once and for all. Yeah, in what sense, as we close then, in what sense is the Lord Jesus Christ our perfect high priest? Let's sum it all up. Well, he has done what we couldn't do, firstly. He's gone, gone before us. Uh, but now that he has gone and done that in being the sacrifice, he also stands as a mediator before us. And that, that's great news for us that he not only kind of takes all of the, the punishment on himself, he also then goes before the Father and saying, I'm perfect. I have these people ready to come and worship you. Uh, I will bring them all the way in. Look to me and look at me rather than looking at their sin. Yeah, and so what the writer of the Hebrews is really showing us, I suppose, in this chapter, Rito, is that Jesus really has done, done it. He's perfected it. Uh, he is there, and he has uh, performed this once and for all sacrifice, and he has fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled the whole Old Testament system. 
Yeah, and this is what gets worked out in the next couple of chapters as well, uh, that idea that Jesus has done it, uh, that he has made us perfect, uh, and you can't undo that, unfortunately. You know, we try and undo it every day, but our sin will never get in the way of that, that he has done it and it's, and it's finished once and for all. And uh, what we'll see in the next couple of chapters is how, kind of how rich this is, how there's so much other stuff that he's done in, in this as well. Mm. And, and because of that sacrifice, that once for all sacrifice, we now live under grace and not law, presumably. Thankfully, yes. Because uh, if I was living under law, I would get out pretty quickly, and I don't think God would have much to do with me. But if it's all God's grace in this, and it's not only God's grace to get us in, but it's God's grace that keeps us in as well. And this is the thing that we often forget: is that no matter how much my sin amounts up, no matter how much I try and run away from God, His grace holds me there. It's not to say that we should go and do those things, but even if that is how we feel, it's, that's not true. So how then can I tell, just uh, thinking practically another pastoral question that we've been asked, Ian, as part of a series by a listener, uh, how do we know whether we're operating or living out of grace and not living out of law? I think this, this is something that kind of gets slowly worked out in, in all of our lives, is that we're slowly moving all of our lives from a life that is about obligation uh, into something that is a response to our relationship. And this is the thing that we just need to... It needs to slowly get worked out of us. Uh, it doesn't just happen instantly. Uh, but the, the one thing that we need to keep coming back to, for me, is that why am I feeling guilty for, for not doing something or doing something? Uh, is it because I feel like I'm obligated to do it or... Am I feeling actually free to go and do it because I want to do it? And so there's this kind of balance there, I think, at times. But am I obligated to go do this thing? Or you know, kind of, am I obligated to, to kind of behave in a certain way? Or is my heart being changed so that I'm free to go and do it? So Yeah, so legal, much of legalism in the church, and we've started discussing this as a constant theme of these podcasts, but the, the outworking of, of legalism is that we can so often be performance-based oriented in the Christian life. We think we have to perform for God, don't we? Yeah, that's a, that's a perfect summary of it. And we, if, we, if we're in that kind of space of God demands my performance, then we're kind of in the wrong space rather than God doesn't demand my performance, but he releases me to go and live a life of good works or whatever you want to kind of call it. And, and that, that pops up uh, a number of times uh, in the Bible, in, particularly in the New Testament, that he's releasing you for that. Yeah, we come on and talk about the role of works uh, in the next few podcasts. And another theme, just before we close, Rito, another listener has pointed out to me, this whole modern view in the church of the prosperity gospel. Now, in my understanding, that would be a sort of legalism, it can be. It definitely can it? be. Mm. Yeah, because, and and this is the thing. As soon as you even move uh, just a, a degree away from the gospel of grace, you end up in legalism. No matter where you move, you're always going to end up in some form of legalism. Uh, and prosperity gospel is is a classic example of that. I don't think it's it kind of it has modern manifestations, but it's always been there, kind of in in the church in different forms. But at its heart, what it's saying is, is if I perform, then God will bless me. 
Yeah, it, it sort of it seems to me from from what I understand that it comes from an Old Testament view, where and and God does bless. There's no doubt about that, and we see that throughout the pages of Scripture. But when the preacher stands up the front on a Sunday and says, "God wants to make you rich," uh, if you only have the faith to believe, to speak a word of faith, and it will happen. That then just make, makes it our performance, doesn't it? That's a world away mm. from the kind of blessing we find in Scripture. Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? And think of the, the kind of the pressure that puts on people. It's, that's just awful. And, and we shouldn't have to live under that pressure. And the manipulation then that that kind of can garner as well. And that's where I, what I've seen, and that's the thing that kind of frustrates me the most, is that you then use that as a way to manipulate people either to give money or to kind of serve it in a church. And you're not doing it because you love Jesus and you love others. You're doing it because you think you're going to get something out of people. And that, that's really the heart of legalism, is trying to get things out of other people, whether that's God or those around you, uh, for you, and you're trying to get stuff out of them for yourself. Where God does the exact opposite. The gospel is the, the exact opposite. He gives us everything, and then we live in response to that. Uh, in closing, what would you say to uh, someone who has been living under the legalism of a prosperity teaching, how, how do they recover their sense of grace and worth? You need to be free from that. I think the only the first place to start is opening the Bible again, looking at Jesus, see what, what he actually says about those types of things. But you need to be involved with other people who believe truth as well, and be involved in a church, be involved with other communities, particularly church communities that are open in God's word, uh, that are together encouraging each other not to believe those lies, but to be free, being free from those things. Mm. Thank you, uh, Rito. Ian Reid, Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North in New Zealand. And next time, Ian, we're going to come on and podcast number 15, I think we're up to 15, and look at Hebrews chapter 8, where we see a better temple and a better covenant. Thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.